All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. I said a hip, a hop, the hippie, hippie, hippie to the hip, hop, hop, and you don't stop the rock. It's a bang, bang, boogie, so up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie, the beat. Now, what you hear is not a test. I'm a rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are going to try to move your feet. See, I am Professor Sid, and I'd like to say hello to the black, to the white, the red, and the brown, the purple, and yellow. But first, I got to bang, bang, the boogie to the boogie. Say up, jump the boogie to the bang, bang, boogie. Let's rock. You don't stop. Rock the riddle. That'll make your body rock. That's right. We are rocking and rapping here on the Fishing Professor Rodcast today. And we have got a great episode for you today because we have got Mr. Mike Leonard, the Vice President of Government Affairs at the American Sport Fishing Association in the studio. Mike is the go-to guy about all things fisheries policy and probably does more than just about any other person on this planet to protect your rights as a recreational angler. And we're going to get his insider scoop on what's happening in recreational fishing policy across this great country of ours. Hey, and on the bourbon break today, I'll be reviewing Breckenridge bourbon. And then when we get good and toasty, I'll be counting down my top 10 crab imitators. As always, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. And please, get to rapping about the Rodcast with all your buds, whether they rap or not, because skill they bebop, a weebop, we rock and scooby-doo, and guess what, America, we love you, because you rock and you roll with so much soul, you could rock till you're 101 years old. I don't mean to brag, I don't mean to boast, but we like hot butter on our breakfast toast. Yeah, rock it up, baby bubba. Hey, welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right. I am thrilled to have Mike Leonard in the Inventive Fishing Inshore Offshore Digital Studio today. Mike is the Vice President of Government Affairs at the American Sport Fishing Association. The ASA, of course, is the trade organization for recreational fishing in the United States. The ASA represents the interest of the United States' 60 million anglers who generate over $45 billion in retail sales, with a $125 billion impact on the nation's economy, creating employment for over a million people. Now, prior to taking up the Vice President of Government Affairs position, Mike served as ASA's Director of Ocean Resource Policy and as a Policy Fellow. The ASA Government Affairs team advocates about public policy in order to promote and protect the interests of the recreational fishing industry and the activity of sport fishing itself. ASA Government Affairs monitors, monitors proposed legislation and regulations to evaluate their potential impact on the industry and on anglers. Likewise, the ASA Government Affairs team organizes coalitions with other outdoor recreation groups like the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation, the Coastal Conservation Association, the Center for Sport Fishing Policy, and the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, to name but a few, all to address issues of common interest that advance public policy agendas in support of recreational fishing. 
So all of this is to say that Mike Leonard heads up a team that is out there keeping tabs on the policies and legislations that affect our lives as anglers. Mike, it is great to have you here. Thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Thanks for having me, Sid. Yeah, that was uh, quite a summary there. That, I think that pretty well covered it. So um, are we done? I think that we, we already hit all the high points. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that, you know, that was really it. Just wanted to let people know who you were. <laughs> and uh, but So um, really, we usually begin our conversations on the Fishing Professor Show by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their origin story, particularly how you got interested in fishing. And given that you earned your undergraduate degree and your master's degrees in fishing science, or fisheries science, I'm assuming that you had some interest in fishing even before you got to college. So tell us the Mike Leonard fishing origin story. Yeah, so it's probably similar to a lot of folks in that um, I grew up with, uh, fortunate enough to grow up in a neighborhood that had a pond nearby. So from the time I was old enough that my parents let me, uh, I spent just about as much time as I could walking to the neighborhood pond and catching bass and, and bluegill. And um, from there expanded out to, um, I, I, so I grew up in Western Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley, God's country, as I like to refer to it. Um, just beautiful area, tons of great natural resources, um, mountains, um, rivers, uh, great trout fishing, great bass, smallmouth. Etc. Um, so pretty much fished anywhere as much as I could um, throughout uh, um, from the time I was about 10. Uh, certainly once I got a car that helped expand my, my fishing range quite a bit. Um, I think my earliest like connection between fishing and a career was I had a dream of being a, uh, um, a fishing TV show host. Uh, you know, Bill Dance, Hank Parker, et cetera. That seemed like about the coolest job you could ever have. Um, eventually realized I probably wasn't a good enough fisherman or TV personality to make that work. <laughs> so I went to college um, at Virginia Tech, which has a big uh, agriculture natural resource program. And within that um, college of natural resources, they've got um, a fishery science program, which seemed to me like the next best thing. Um, to be as a career out there um, in the wild, uh, squeezing fish, as we often referred to it, um, as a fishery scientist. I wasn't sure if that meant being a fisheries biologist for a state agency or continuing in the academic side. So to help hone that down, I went to graduate school at Auburn, which also has a great fisheries program, um, did a graduate research program there and got a master's in fishery science there too. Uh, through the course of that, realized probably the academic side was of less interest to me because that required getting a PhD. And at that point, I was pretty darn burned out of going to school. Um, uh, so was interested in maybe the fisheries biologist role and uh, moved back to Virginia. This was in 2008. Um, so right when the recession was sort of reaching its peak, not a whole lot of state agencies were hiring at that point. And um, saw a posting for the American Sport Fishing, Sport Fishing Association's Policy Fellow uh, position, which is a two-year sort of paid internship that ASA has been doing for a long time. And I really didn't know anything about policy, uh, government. I mean, I, again, I was a fisheries major. You don't learn a whole lot about civics. And I didn't have much of a personal interest in, 
in government or politics either. Uh, but I thought, you know, this might be interesting to try out for a couple of years, just understand how all that stuff works, uh, especially since I can't, can't seem to find a, a job in the career I was more interested in. So um, got my foot in the door as uh, ASA's policy fellow and have just sort of weaseled my way through the association ever since then. I've found that learning how government works through the lens of recreational fishing has been a really fascinating journey um, because it's uh, you tend to get your meetings accepted when you reach out to congressional office and ask to meet with them to talk about fisheries issues. Um, there's a whole lot going on and we can discuss, and I'm sure you've discussed in the past with others, just how much uh, policy and politics does play a tremendous role for better or worse in fishing throughout the country. Um, so it's really just been really fascinating and enriching, um, frustrating at times too. But um, seeing that sort of hidden backside of how, um, how fisheries policy works, how much government plays a role in fishing and, you know, growing and learning and uh, feeling like you're, you're starting to have an impact on, on how all that uh, ends up playing out. So yeah, probably your untraditional journey to being a, a lobbyist, but um, it's certainly been, uh, as I said, uh, enjoyable, enriching, fulfilling, with plenty of frustration along the way too. Oh, I'm sure, uh, but that's that sounds fantastic, as you know, and as our friend Glenn Hughes knows, that's a direction I'm interested in learning more about as well. But that said, uh, let's talk about fishing and politics, and I suppose to set up a segue into some questions about your new podcast called "The Politics of Fish." But as a matter of setting up that segue, a mutual friend and colleague of ours who appeared on the Fishing Professor Show a few months ago, Jeff Angers, president of the Center for Sport Fishing Policy, has said that fishing shouldn't be political, but it is. Why and how did fishing become political? I guess by the nature of just about everything uh, <laughs> that goes on, uh, just about everything has become political in our lives these days. Um but, you know, I, it, it is, but I will say, uh, depending on the issue, some can be more political than others. But in general, from my vantage point, um, you know, working in D.C., working with a bunch of other industries and associations and just sort of generally seeing how things go, um, you know, fishing, outdoor recreation as a whole seems to be um, doing a lot better in terms of bipartisanship and um, uh, bringing folks together than other aspects of, uh, of politics these days. Um, I think as stuff has gotten more partisan and contentious, there is still a large segment of the political world that still wants to find stuff to actually accomplish and do for the greater good. And, um, you know, public access, public land management, legitimate natural resource conservation uh, seems to be one of those relatively few areas that can still bring folks together. Um, but yeah, th that said, um, it's, um, that's not true for every issue. And there are some, uh, a lot of it is based on geography, what part of the country you're in and what party tends to dominate in that part of the country. And therefore, if they're working on something to address their own regional issue, um, the other party is going to fight it just because that tends to be the default that everyone takes. So, um, yeah, I'd say it's probably just a symptom of a broader challenge in society that uh, just about everything these days has become political and we're not immune. But again, I'd say it probably hasn't impacted us to the degree it 
maybe has impacted a lot of other uh, issues and industries. Do you think part of that shift into the politics of fishing has also been brought about by the extreme success of the industry and the just growth and the amount of money involved in this industry? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably works. It probably works both ways. Um, I mean, in my time working at ASA for what 13 years now, um, I have noticed that recreational fishing, and again, taking a step back, outdoor recreation in general, the overall platform we have, how we're viewed on Capitol Hill has increased, um, I don't know, an order of magnitude or greater uh, in terms of people being aware of recreational fishing, outdoor recreation, its importance. Uh, and probably within that, the biggest change is recognizing its economic importance, that this isn't just sort of a fun, nice to have, um, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that. When we've got some spare time kind of thing. It's recognized as a tremendous economic power powerhouse and um, not probably to the extent it should, but it's definitely getting there. And, um, you know, with that, at the same time, also comes uh, some detractors and people that view that as uh, maybe not the best thing because, you know, you're extracting a resource and uh, uh, people, there, there are some camps that view, you know, any taking of, of wildlife or an animal or any impact on natural resources as a bad thing that we need to clamp down on. So, um, you know, I think the net has been positive, but at the same time, the more influential you get, the more um, uh, the more people recognize you as a viable political force, the more you're going to have, you know, an, an, an opposite reaction to that. So, um, so yeah, like I said, I think it's it's worked different ways, but on the whole, I think being more prominent, more recognized is is certainly better off for our industry. Excellent. So let's talk about your new podcast, The Politics of Fish, which is a biweekly podcast that the American Sport Fishing Association hosts that covers the people, organizations, and issues that impact the recreational fishing industry. Tell us a little bit about the impetus behind launching that podcast. Yeah, I will appreciate the plug. Um, hopefully folks enjoy your podcast. They'll enjoy ours and vice versa. Um, we at ASA, you know, we we work on a lot of issues, a lot of complicated, weedy, you know, as fun and relaxing and enjoyable as fishing is. The policy behind it is the opposite. It's complicated and contentious and messy. And you really have to drill down to understand what's going on with, you know, fishery management plans and rebuilding timelines and um, uh, environmental impact statements and, and, you know, all the messy, complicated stuff that we work on that ultimately has a big impact on how many days you can go fish, what your bag limits are, uh, how accessible public lands are, you know, et cetera. So uh, it's a perpetual struggle to figure out how to boil that down in a way that um, your average angler who um, just for very logical reasons doesn't have the time or interest in, you know, reading 300 page um, environmental impact statements or attending every fishery management council meeting, et cetera. So, you know, we are always looking for ways to take this complicated but important uh, policy information and um, relay it to our membership and to the broader public in a way that um, becomes more relatable, understandable for them. And um, personally, I've always loved podcasts in part because I have a long commute. I live down in Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is about an hour away from DC. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, and uh, I know a lot of others do too. And, um, you know, felt like 
in addition to a lot of other media channels, that this could be a nice additional component to help, um, you know, do a little bit of a deeper dive uh, into the people that are working on these issues, the organizations, and, um, and be able to actually, you know, kind of delve into to more of these policy topics. Um, again, hopefully in a way that makes them more understandable and, and relatable to with the end goal of, you know, hopefully listeners come away feeling like, you know, this is stuff they can and should get involved in and can then move on to, um, you know, w- working towards, you know, whether it's engaging with your policymakers or getting involved in the fishery management planning process, um, you know, in a, a more engaged and aware um, membership and angling community, I think can only serve us uh, in a much greater good across the board in, um, in helping to advance a lot of these priorities. That's great. And I have to say, I've really appreciated listening to the podcast and I think it's great that you're doubling up, tripling up on the media approaches because you've got your short little videos that you do also. And I was really appreciative of the podcast version of the Rob Rob Whitman episode, which is taken from the webinar that you hosted with Congressman Whitman. Um, and so I like being able to get those messages in multimodal kinds of approaches. So uh, congrats on doing all of that. Yeah, well, you are... Um... You've been an inspiration for a lot of this. I still remember your um, uh, the, the videos you used to do. You know, I've been thinking uh, <laughs> where you would do deep dives on uh, you know Red Snapper and Biscay National Park and others. And um, so, yeah, great sort of template that we've been able to try and build upon. Um, but yeah, the, the communications, the public facing part of this is is critical because um, as much as we at ASA and others like. Center for Sport Fishing Policy that you mentioned and Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. As much as we're working this stuff behind the scenes, um, you know, there's strength in numbers and uh, we really need the fishing community to be aware and engaged in this stuff too. Because trust me, the groups that are working against us, um, they're, they've got a lot of people and um, we do too, but we need to get more of our people involved and engaged. And um, a lot of that is uh, predicated on you know, being educated and uh, understanding the importance of this stuff to where you, you feel motivated to get involved. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, and I want to ask you a, qu- a couple of questions uh, about some numbers that influence how we think about fisheries management and that involvement. And that first number is 60 million. That's about how many registered anglers there are in the U.S. now. And that's a lot of people. But unlike other large constituent groups, anglers have never been galvanized into a consistent political faction. Can you speak to why that is? Yeah, I mean, I've got theories on it. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever done, you know, a deep dive scientific study or human dimension study into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, 60 millions, that's a lot of people. Um, that's a, a large percentage of the country that goes fishing. Um, of course, within that, not all 60 million of them are the same level of avidity. Uh, a good chunk of that are folks that, um, you know, go fishing once or twice a year. It's sort of a family that takes their kids when they go to the beach uh, or go on vacation. Um, within, and then, you know, from that end of the spectrum to folks that fish 365 days a year or as much as they can that live and breathe this stuff. Um, so, you know, if you think of who really is going to be motivated enough to view this as a priority to devote their free time, it's probably a number smaller than 60 million. But um, I think probably the greatest challenge is the fact that fishing for most all of us is viewed as a fun thing to do. It's enjoyable. It's supposed to be relaxing. 
Some people may take it a little more seriously than others, but it's, I think in general, an escape from life's difficulties and uh, frustrations and stresses. And that's why, um, you know, when we tend to see recessions or like a global pandemic happen, uh, fishing participation starts to increase, uh, which again, seems to be an indication that when times get tough, you go back to what brings you joy and pleasure. And what do you remember doing as a kid that you had fun doing? And that's fishing. So to go from that to taking your your hobby, your pastime, something that's so fun, and then saying, yeah, but we also want you to get involved in the messy, contentious, uh, not fun side of fishing and go to a Gulf Fishery Management Council meeting and get, you know, pinned against the wall by a commercial shareholder. Um, maybe an exaggeration, maybe not. Uh, or, yeah, you know, read up on uh, whatever is the latest proposed regulation at the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission and, and go testify at a public hearing in front of 200 people. And, you know, it's taking a fun thing in your life and making it uh, a little less fun. So I think that's an inherent challenge. Um, I also think probably a lot of anglers don't understand the really what is at stake here. Um, a lot of it's taken for granted that because fishing, has always been there and has always, um, uh, been, you know, there's changes in seasons and regulations, but in general, um, over the course of time, probably a lot of anglers don't view a tremendous change in their ability to go fishing, but that's not a given. And if you look at things like red snapper, where we went from, you know, a hundred plus day season down to a proposed three day season for an incredibly abundant resource that does show that this stuff can go away. Uh, if we're not vigilant and and um, engaged in the the management policy stuff, so um, I think there's definitely a lack of awareness of what's at stake. Which again, I think it's back to the need for those of us that are you know down in the weeds to um, kind of redouble these efforts to get anglers more aware of what's you know what the implications are, what's the threats, what are the opportunities, and why their voice is so important. Um, so I don't know; those are at least top of mind what I think is part of it. I guess the last thing I'd say is um, every now and then I'll hear from someone who will say, you know, we need to create the NRA of fishing, which sounds great. <laughs> I think the lack of a constitutional amendment on, on our side makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, lack of and, and it, we don't, yeah. And nobody's arguing for rod rights. You know, I think we don't that's have the challenge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's not apples to apples. Um, you could argue that lost red snapper access is sort of comparable to losing a firearm, but I, I don't know that it, it's really in the same ballpark. So yeah, again, it's just all to say it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a different set of threat threats, different set of conflicts, different set of, um, you know, inherent fundamental issues at stake, but that's not to say, we can't and shouldn't look for ways to get anglers more motivated and involved, but um, yeah, it's just, it's just a different challenge. I wonder if part of that challenge also is simply um, geographic uh, difference as well that, you know, while those of us in the Gulf are arguing about red snapper, we don't have the reason to argue about pebble mine or, or salmon in California or some of the other issues. And so we're very localized in our views of what we're attentive to rather than looking at larger kinds of federal approaches. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think it's one thing, and not to keep going back to this example, but you know, if a state 
or a federal agency is proposing something that is viewed to be infringing upon gun rights, it's easy for gun owners to look at that and say, hey, this is a slippery slope. If they do that here, it's going to impact me. Um, I don't know that the fishing community views things the same way. You're right. California, salmon, um, and the water allocations we deal with out there, I'm not sure resonate with a crappie fisherman from Iowa who views, hey, if we're losing fishing access there, I'm going to lose fishing access here. Um, but there's definitely an undercurrent of the need for us to sort of all stick together and understand that we're all kind of in it together. But um, yeah, I think a lot of anglers kind of view, you know, their own favorite fishery or um, what's going on in their backyard as, you know, the extent of what matters to them. Where um, if we can do more to show that these 60 million anglers out there are all kind of in it together, we're all part of the same community. We need to understand these shared threats um, that even if it doesn't impact your own personal you know, fishery, um, the implication for somewhere down the road, down, somewhere down the road is definitely still there. I, I agree completely. And I think that one of the most significant manifestations of how we've addressed this um, and the kind of visibility that was brought to it was the passing and signing of the Modernizing Recreational Fisheries Management Act of 2018, which really, for the first time in U.S. history, recognized the contributions of recreational fishing as holding as much importance, both economically and culturally, as commercial fishing traditionally has. Could you talk about what the passing of that act did in terms of recreational fishing seat at the table in D.C.? Yeah, I think uh, there was a lot of good stuff in the Modern Fish Act. Um, to me, the significance of, of getting that enacted the first time a piece of legislation focused entirely on saltwater recreational fishing got signed into law, that almost mattered more than what was in it. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that there wasn't substantive improvements made in, in, in that, uh, in that uh, act, but the fact that the recreational fishing community uh, banded together and got enough momentum on a uh, in a policy arena that has typically been dominated by the commercial fishing industry historically, and then more recently by the environmental community. Um, even though, if you just look at commercial versus recreational fishing in the saltwater, um, commercial fishing is uh, responsible for ninety eight percent of harvest, recreational fishing two percent. But from an economic standpoint, the number of jobs created, the two are roughly on par with each other. Um, so I think historically, policymakers had focused on that 98% of fish caught commercially and viewed them as you know 98% important and we, us only 2% important. Uh, I think the Modern Fish Act symbolized this growing recognition that, hey, wait a second, these sectors are, um, are roughly on par with each other from an economic standpoint, um, from a uh, cultural standpoint. Uh, I think there's an increasing recognition that recreational fishing um, is, is hugely important. Uh, it's sort of ingrained in the fabric of a lot of coastal communities around the country and that uh, existing uh, federal law and federal management um, had really been designed for commercial fishing and therefore it wasn't doing such a great job for recreational fishing. So uh, the Modern Fish Act definitely chips away at a lot of those management problems. But um, I think from a political standpoint, um, just again, it's it, the symbolism that, hey, the recreational fishing community is powerful enough that despite opposition from other um, politically influential segments was able to get something done. Um, you know, that means a lot. And I think we're hopefully continuing to build upon that momentum, um, not just in Congress, but in the fisheries management uh, arena as a whole. Excellent. 
So ASA has just added a Pacific Fisheries Policy Director, Larry Phillips, and a few months before that, you added a Southeast Fisheries Policy Director, Martha Gaius. Could you talk about the importance about having regional experts like this when it comes to policy advocacy? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a lot going on. We're working on a lot of issues, um, and that makes it tough to keep, to keep up with. Um, you know, I'm sometimes jealous of other uh, associations or industries that, you know, for them, the legislation that uh, impacts their industry, you know, there's like a a bill. There's there's one thing that they need to focus on: the you know, Water Resources Development Act or um, the appropriation cycle. There's this one program that they really need to make sure gets uh, gets funded. For us, you know, with with recreational fishing, there's no single um, piece of legislation or, or policy that dictates uh, fishing. You know, it's all done regionally, state by state, region by region, locality by co- locality, and fishery by fishery. So, um, you know, there's not sort of this one top-down thing that you can work on that's going to ultimately provide fishing access for everybody. It all needs to be done from the bottom up uh, at all these different jurisdictions. And so, um, yeah, this has been a priority of ASA, uh, something our board recognized uh, many, many years ago. Uh, really starting in Florida, you know, fishing capital of the world, that we need to have more of a presence and boots on the ground um, at all these different state commissions and and fishery management councils and within the state legislatures to keep tabs on all these individual issues that are uh, collectively having such a huge impact on the industry. So so it's a model that I think has been successful. Hopefully we can continue to grow it. Yeah, you mentioned Larry on the West Coast. Larry um, is formerly a uh, regional director uh, for the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, has a lot of respect for the, the from the fishing community up there, uh, which I uh, <laughs> I viewed as uh, incredibly impressive, considering that that state tends to be delivering a lot of bad news to the fishing community. So the fact that Larry was a part of that and yet still uh, was held in such high regard by a lot of our members and others up there showed that um, you know he, he's he's made of the right stuff and understands. Uh, importance of these issues and the importance of uh, working with with anglers in the industry um, even when we're we're not all on the same uh, uh, not all you know favoring the same outcomes so uh, and then Martha you know another uh, person that we nabbed from a state agency she was um, uh, in charge of federal fisheries issues at Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission um, and uh, was the vice chair of the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council um, had, had done a lot of work with the South Atlantic Council. So, um, you know, she was priority number one to help expand our um, involvement and reach down in the Southeast. And, um, you know, we've got Mike Wayne, who works in the Northeast. We've got uh, Connor Bevan, who handles inland stuff. We've got a few other folks um, uh, helping us out along the way. And, um, you know, that, I think even still, we're just sort of looking at the tip of the iceberg and still only dressing the the biggest of the priorities within those regions, because there's still, you know, a lot more going on. And that's where, you know, having partners and um, working with other associations and, and local groups. Um, I think collectively, we, we all kind of build upon each other. Um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly a lot to keep up with and a lot more than just what goes on in DC that, um, that we need to be keeping tabs on. All right. So let's talk about some of those things you're keeping tabs on. Um, I know that ASA is currently focused on what is known as the 30 by 30 policies. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about 30 by 30 and particularly the difference between the federal approach to 30 by 30 and California's approach. 
Yeah, thanks for asking. So this is, um, you know, this is a complicated one. Um, but the overall thing is, is simple and maybe overly oversimplified. 30 by 30 refers to this global initiative to protect 30% of all lands and waters by the year 2030. Um, so it's a nice sound bite, 30 by 30. Um, how you actually do that, what that ultimately looks like, that's one of those, you know, devils in the details kind of things. Um, of course, the recreational fishing community cares deeply about conservation. I'd argue probably more than any other stakeholder group that, um, that is involved in uh, aquatic resource conservation because uh, we know that without healthy and abundant resources, the sport's not going to exist. And that's why uh, historically and um, certainly will continue into the future, our community puts so much um, money, so much of our own resources back into uh, conservation management through uh, the license fees on uh, when you're buying a fishing license, through the excise tax on uh, fishing equipment that um, sport fishing manufacturers pay, the excise or the, the gas tax on motorboat fuel that all goes into the sport fish and um, sport fish restoration program, uh, and then direct donations. That's somewhere around 1.7 billion dollars that the recreational fishing community puts into conservation each year. Uh, I don't know of any other you know, environmental organization or others that's putting that much money into good legitimate conservation. So it's something we've long recognized. So you would think, okay, there's this initiative to do more uh, good conservation and, and reach this 30% goal. But that's something we should all be for. Um, but this is where the difference between, are we talking about protect or are we talking about conserving these resources? That's where it gets complicated because um, we care about conservation, but uh, if you are restoring a fishery or restoring an ecosystem, but then you're not letting anybody go out there and fish on it, that, that doesn't do us a whole lot of good. And it doesn't help perpetuate this sort of virtuous cycle of the more fishing you have, the more money that goes back into conservation. So um, there are some that are looking at 30 by 30 as a way to create more closed zones, protected areas, wilderness areas where um, you know, we'll, we'll just draw lines on the map and close everything down and not let the public go out there and interact with it and, and call it a day and, and feel like we did something good for uh, the resource. And that's what has us pretty worried. Uh, you mentioned difference between federal and state approaches. Uh, I will say that from, um, from the outset, uh, this current administration, the Biden administration, uh, we're still waiting for a lot of the details to come about, but what we've seen so far the way they are handling 30 by 30 is much more in line with, I think, how we view conservation in that this is going to be um, voluntary, uh, working with state and local groups to identify needs, um, prioritizing uh, recreational access and improving recreational access. Because I think during COVID, we've all gained a greater appreciation of, of needing to be able to spend time in the outdoors. So, um, yeah, I think that what we're seeing from the Biden administration is going to be more let's build upon existing successful collaborative programs that balance conservation with um, the need to expand public access. But then on the flip side, um, you've got California that is doing its own 30 by 30 initiative. And um, at least on the marine side, what they're saying is they think they've only protected 16 percent of the coast through a marine protected area network. And that we got to get to 30%. So that means we're going to need to nearly double how many closed areas there are in the state. And there's not a whole lot of justification for that. They're not recognizing that there is a whole host of other uh, conservation 
uh, management um, initiatives within the state from marine sanctuaries to uh, rockfish closures to, um, to refuges that are all benefiting biodiversity and benefiting conservation. But the state right now is just saying, no, unless it's a marine protected area in which fishing's closed, we're not counting it. And that's where these numbers, the 30% stuff, I think it's, it's easy to kind of roll your eyes and say, you know, oh, if we get to 29.5%, we haven't reached our goal and biodiversity is lost. Like, you know, I think there's, there's some value in having an aspirational goal, but we also have to have a reality check in the process. So, um, yeah, it's it's an example of a complication of what we work on. That um, that something uh, the same policy could be tremendously beneficial to us, uh, but if interpreted a different way, it could mean uh, you're you're doubling the amount of areas that you can't go fishing anymore. So it's all the more need for us to continue to stay involved and engaged as this stuff plays out. You mentioned the the Biden administration. I think one of the interesting things over these last several years, particularly back to the modernizing or modern record, modern fishing act, is just how bipartisan these efforts in recreational fishing have been, uh, and how a lot of times we're not seeing those kinds of party line approaches, but actually a lot of uh, collaboration and cooperation. Yeah, I mean, I go back to even within the same party um, in two thousand and nine. Uh, under the Obama administration, there was an executive order called National Ocean Policy that you may remember said that um, put us all into a panic. And it uh, had a lot of the same terminologies. It didn't have this you know, 30% goal in it, but it was uh, proposed to be a, you know, a new way to do spatial management in the ocean and, and marine spatial planning and looking at how do we do a better job of protecting the ocean. And we looked at that and uh, again, at the same time, we had something going on in California called the Marine Life Protection Act, which the state was using a lot of similar terminology that ultimately led to these protected areas. And within this National Ocean Policy Executive Order, there was zero recognition of how the oceans are uh, an important place for recreation, uh, the importance of recreational fishing to the economy and the need to you know, do conservation for the benefit of the American public. It was all about just protect, protect, protect. And, you know, fortunately, we were able to create a little bit of a uh, of attention to that, um, the, the shortcomings of that policy. Ultimately, it, it ended up getting right sized in a way that actually just didn't end up really going anywhere. But um, it showed that back then we just weren't really thought of when people were talking about ocean conservation. Uh, and then fast forward from then to what we saw from this administration. Uh, it was night and day. I mean, if you looked at their initial 30 by 30 uh, reports, which they called America the Beautiful, um, front and center was the importance of doing conservation for the, uh, the good of, um, of outdoor recreation and access and needing to uh, enhance access, uh, things that just were not even thought of even, even 12 years ago. So, um, yeah, it shows that even within the same party that you can um, you can make a lot of progress, but also it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that over the course of time, I think our community as a whole has become much more prominent and recognized um, on, on a political standpoint to where um, I, I think we're able to, before the mistake is made, uh, folks are aware that, hey, this is a constituency. We need to make sure that we are um, uh, promoting and uh, have, have their best interest in mind as we're, we're thinking about these types of things. Excellent. So obviously, we're not going to be able to talk about all of the policies that ASA is tracking right now. But I would ask that, you know, there's another big effort right now going on, and that's the Forage Fish Act. 
And I was wondering if you could talk about the Forage Fish Act and also its connection with debates regarding menhaden harvest, which is sort of a tangential issue that ASA is keeping an eye on right now. Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. So um, forage fish, and for those who may not be aware of the term, this is um, essentially all the smaller fish uh, in the ocean, or if you're talking about freshwater too, that larger predators depend on. So if you think of, you know, sardines, anchovies, yeah, you mentioned menhaden, you know, these smaller schooling fish that, you know, you might also think of them as bait, um, that ultimately are incredibly important for the ecosystem. Uh, it's an area that I think our community's long recognized from a management standpoint has been lacking. Um, there are commercial fisheries that harvest these forage fish and either, you know, grind them up into fish oil pills or, or cat food or for, um, for, for feed, for, you know, salmon or, or, or you name it. And um, that harvest takes place. And a lot of times managers are not setting limits in a way that's mindful of the impact that has on the ecosystem, particularly from our standpoint, the sport fish populations that, that depend on them as food as well. Um, and that's really the idea behind the Forage Fish Conservation Act is let's get sort of building upon the Modern Fish Act and recognizing the importance of recreational fishing and, and good management. Let's make sure that this federal fisheries management system continues to shift away from this commercial fishing dominant mindset. And uh, in this case, as we're thinking about forage fish, recognize that um, you know, it, it, there's, there's, uh, there's a time and a place for harvesting of them, but um, we need to be ensuring that any sort of harvest levels are um, set in a way that do not have negative impacts on the ecosystem as a whole. Um, and even if this one forage fish population that's being harvested, you know, that that catch limit is, uh, is allowing that individual species to be sustainable. That may not be the case for all the other um, uh, parts of the ecosystem that depend on it. And so we need to be ensuring that these catch limits take into account those ecosystem impacts. Uh, it's something that you mentioned Menhaden. So, so the Forage Fish Conservation Act applies to federal fisheries management, so offshore fisheries. Menhaden in the Gulf and in the Atlantic are state-managed fisheries, so the Forage Fish Conservation Act wouldn't apply to them. But yeah, there are separate efforts underway looking at Menhaden, which is, um, I think, the, the largest by volume harvested forage fish in the country. Um, that, uh, that that incredibly large volume um, probably needs to be re-examined based on those ecosystem needs as well. So through a different mechanism, through working with the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, uh, through some of the states to figure out, um, you know, what, what can we do to start reducing some of these negative impacts on, on habitat, on, um, on predators like striped bass in the Atlantic that uh, Atlantic Menhaden Harvest is having um, to ensure that the ecosystem and in particular the sport fish that we care about are, um, are, are still able to have an adequate food supply. I, just in hearing you talk about that, I feel my blood boiling and I want to go into the whole conversation about omega protein and what happened in the Chesapeake Bay, but we will uh, leave that for another conversation. Um, so uh, clearly from what you've said today, you've got your finger on the pulse of fisheries policies, but what can we as average everyday anglers do to keep informed and to contribute to that conversation? Yeah, I would say, you know, keep listening to this podcast. Um, get involved. If you've got local fishing organizations, you know, if you're a saltwater angler, there's groups like the Coastal Conservation Association that do a lot of great habitat and policy work. Um, so, you know, find out what's going on there. 
But um, from more kind of a day-to-day immediate thing, you know, ASA has a website, keepamericafishing.org. That is our angler advocacy site that we are constantly pushing out alerts and information on um, things like Menhaden, things like 30 by 30, the whole gamut of policy issues, um, you know, legislation, uh, proposed uh, regulations that are ultimately going to have a big impact on, on the fishing community. So you can go there, uh, stay up to date, and um, you don't necessarily have to keep going to the site. We will, uh, when important information comes out, we'll push it to you. Um, and uh, in a lot of cases, it's just a few clicks to send a letter or an email um, and, uh, and make sure that your voice is heard. So, yeah, check out keepamericafishing.org. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of stuff on our social media accounts at, uh, at ASA. If you go to asafishing.org, you can find information there. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of a learning curve to, you know, finding out, you know, who, where's this information, who's pushing it out. But, um, you know, you don't have to, to go through a whole lot of steps or, you know, readjust your daily schedule in order to get this information to you. We, we try and make it as easy as possible for, for folks to get up to date. and. Um, and, and get their voice registered on these issues um, as they can. That's great. It's fantastic stuff. I really do encourage everyone listening and the listening crew uh, to pay attention to Keep America Fishing, which is sort of the outreach to those of us who are anglers, but not in the industry to keep involved with stuff. And I, I think that signing up for the action alerts is a phenomenal thing. And like Mike said, it is very easy with just a couple of clicks to make sure your congressmen are hearing uh, what you have to say about these issues. So it's a great way to get involved. Um, And also for those of you in Florida, of course, in addition to Keep America Fishing, we've got Keep Florida Fishing, which does a similar kind of thing, but on local issues. Yeah. And that's, I mentioned earlier, Florida uh, was something that we recognized a long time ago was, you know, it's the, the fishing capital of the world. It's where we have our trade show. Uh, a lot of our members are based there. Obviously, a lot of anglers either live there or go there. And um, yeah, in particular, there's a lot going on there. So that's why we created this devoted program just from, just in Florida, from the Everglades issues to, to snapper to um, marine protected areas, coral reef conservation. Yeah, there's sort of a heightened focus on, on what's going on in Florida. So we'll see if that expands out to other, you know, keep X state fishing but, uh, but yeah, right now we've still got a lot going on to keep America fishing throughout the country. But then, yeah, as you mentioned, that dedicated program in Florida. So Mike, we have a traditional wrap-up question here on the Fishing Professor Show. And I'm going to get to that now. And I want to ask you, with everything you do, with all that you know, with your fishing background, what is your grail fish? What's the fish that still sits atop your fishing bucket list? Um. <laughs> I guess I need to think of a new one uh, because last year I actually had two. So I live in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as I mentioned. Folks may be aware that we, uh, for the last 20 or 30 years or so, had this uh, snakehead population infiltrate. I think you've got some snakeheads down in Florida, too. Um, And I'd heard a lot about it. At first, there was sort of fear and panic and uh, that this is going to take over the system. They've sort of found their niche. And have become an interesting, fun sport fish. You know, you catch them in real shallow water and real thick vegetation. They taste delicious. And um, I'd always wanted to catch one. I finally did catch one last year. And then uh, on the saltwater side, I've always been um, fascinated by cobia. I mentioned I grew up in Western Virginia. Didn't do a whole lot of saltwater fishing other than, you know, uh, surf casting when we go to the beach. 
uh, but was able to take a trip out on the bay and catch a really nice uh, 48 inch um, cobia, which was also delicious. So um, that's partly to just brag that I had a couple good fishing trips last year, but also I don't have a good answer because I'm going to need to figure out what the next goal is uh, and maybe what Holy Grail fish I can, can look for this year. That's excellent. There's always got to be another fish though, right? I mean, I'm sure you'll find that answer. Yeah. I will say though, I've gotten really into hunting the last couple of years. So that from a priority standpoint has, has taken, uh, uh, that's gone up a notch, but that's not to say I don't still love fishing, but most of my focus like right now is on Turkey hunting. I've never killed a Turkey. So um, that would be my Holy grail on the wildlife side right now, but I'll have a better answer for you next time we talk. Excellent. You're not, you're not going to shift from I cast to shot show on us. Are you? I don't think so. Part of the fun of hunting is I don't do the policy side. So I don't have a stigma. Every time I go fishing, I can't stop thinking about this policy stuff. So <laughs> I, I like it that way. Oh, Mike, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. But really, I can't thank you and the entire government affairs team at ASA for the work that you do on behalf of every angler in the country. So, Mike, thanks for being on the Rodcast. Yeah, well, appreciate the kind words and uh, look forward to continue working with you. Thanks for having me on here. And um, and yeah, best of best of luck with this as we both have our podcast endeavors and I uh, look forward to continue to share notes on how to you know build upon each other's work and, and help get this message out to a much broader audience. Sounds great, Mike. And to the listening crew, you do want to check out The Politics of Fish, which is Mike Leonard's new podcast. Mike, take it easy. Thank you. All right. Thanks, you too. Thanks, Ed. as Mr. McConaughey might intone. It is time for another installment of the Bourbon Break, and today I'll be getting high, high, high in the mountains, because today I'm going to be getting Rocky Mountain high in the highest state of colorful Colorado, as I'll be offering up my thoughts about Breckenridge Bourbon Whiskey A Blend. Now, I have to say that I had not heard of Breckenridge Bourbon, Bourbon Whiskey A Blend, but a month or so ago, I flew out to Denver to attend a cousin's wedding, and when I stepped off of the plane into the Denver airport, there was a rather large billboard welcoming me to Denver and encouraging me to try Breckenridge Bourbon Whiskey a blend. Intrigued and not one to dismiss such a welcoming billboard offhandedly, I decided to give the Breckenridge a try. And let me tell you folks that try it I did over and over to the extent that the Breckenridge Bourbon Whiskey a blend and I got to be real close. And now I feel at ease calling Breckenridge Bourbon Whiskey a blend by its less formal name and used only by those of us who have established a degree of familial familiarity. So today I'll be talking about Breckenridge Bourbon Whiskey a blend, or Breck, as I have come to call it, since that's much easier a word to slur out when ordering your 10th or 11th double. I will say, too, that I was pleasantly surprised to find that my local liquor store back home also carries Breck, so we have remained duly acquainted since I returned from the Mile High City. I was also pleased to find out that Breck has several cousins, including Breckenridge Bourbon Whiskey, a blend reserve that is selected just for total wine, but I will not be taking up that reserve bottle today, though I may in a future bourbon break. Breckenridge also has some specialty releases and some other bottles I'm dying to try out, like their single barrel, their high proof, their powerhouse, their spice whiskey, and yes, their rum and their rum cask bourbon whiskey. But today, let's stay focused on my Mountain Mama Breck. 
Now, Breckenridge Distillery started distilling back in 2007, or as we old-timers say, back in Ox 7 in Colorado and at an elevation of 9,700 feet, and they have the reputation as the highest distillery in the world. All right. They also boast that their whiskey is made from snow melt from Rocky Mountains, which I gotta say seems like a much more noble use of Rocky Mountain water than making Coors beer, but I'm hesitant to say that out loud because I don't want Smokey, the bandit, the snowman, or Fred coming after me. Frog, however, is welcome to chase me down anytime. However, only part of this blend is actually coming from the Breckenridge Distillery. Some of the blend is listed as coming from Indiana, which tells me they're outsourcing part of the blend from MGP. But I'm okay with that, as I don't tend to be a purist about where the whiskey comes from, only what distillers and distributors actually do with it. Anyway, Breck's mash bill is 56% corn, 38% green rye, and 6% malted barley. And what that mash bill translates to on the palate is a rye-centered flavor. But that information doesn't appear on the bottle, so I had to do a little FBI-type investigating to locate that information. It is an 86-proof bourbon, so you're not going to get that high-alcohol spicy burn. Breck is aged for two to three years in charred new American oak barrels. It's got a beautiful coloration, and I'm really glad that they bottled this in a clear bottle without a lot of label to hide the coloration. The color is golden brown, and for whatever reason, it reminds me of the color of tea. But in the way that those old Dandy Don Meredith Lipton iced tea commercials would show a glass of iced tea, and you'd just feel how refreshing that tea was. Well, I get that same visual sense from Breck. It just looks good, and Mm, I gotta tell you, when I pour that Breck over ice in a 12-ounce iced tea glass, well, I know it's gonna be a good day. I do have to say, too, that when poured, the visual makes you think that it's gonna be a thinner bourbon than it actually is, but it's really not, and the flavor is rich and dynamic. Now, like I said, this is an 86-proof whiskey. The nose doesn't give you much burn because of that. A little, but not too much. The nose is where that rye focus really announces itself, and if you do get hints of peppermint in the nose and rye, that's because rye-heavy whiskeys tend to do that. But there's also confirmation of that oak barrel and just a little bit of that vanilla. That start of the palate progression opens with a bit of spice brought on by the rye, some cinnamon, maybe some of that peppermint evident in the nose, but not too heavy. It's no Banaka Blaster mouthwash. It's super inviting and tasty. That spice is complemented with more of that vanilla, some toasted sweet caramel too, maybe a little bit of honey. There's not much finish to the Breck. It just kind of dies on the vine at the end. Because it's a low-proof bourbon, you don't get a lingering burn, which I suppose is a quality for a decent lighter bourbon. And I suppose that's where we end up, with a decent bourbon. Nothing over-the-top magnificent, but certainly nothing unpleasant. It would make a great daily driver, except for one minor exception, the price. Depending on where you find it, the price is about 50 bucks a bottle, though I've seen it for as low as 45 and as high as 65 At that cost, there are certainly better bourbons out there, and at that cost, it's really not competitive with a lot of those bourbons that are out there at a similar price point. However, that said, and look, I get that a lot of reviewers out there have frowned on the lack of information provided about Breckenridge bourbon whiskey on the label and elsewhere, but I'm less concerned about that and still find the Breck to be worth pouring. I don't recommend it as a standout, but I do recommend it as a pleasant, unimposing, and tasty bourbon. 
So those are my thoughts on Breckenridge bourbon. And that's the bourbon break for this week. Hey, but before we go, as a final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor bourbon break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how that I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alleys, speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out shout out to The Barrel in Estes Park, Colorado, where a significant part of my education about Breckenridge bourbon whiskey was informally provided. Ingrid and Lou Bush have built a great bar with a great atmosphere right in the middle of a beautiful location, hey, with an abundant trout fishery right at the doorstep. If you're headed into Estes Park or anywhere nearby, I recommend hitting up the barrel for some great bourbon options. And in the spirit of the Colorado vibe, may we all be who our dogs think we are. As always, if you've got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Now let's get back to the fishing. All right, it is time for another edition of the Fishing Professor's Weekly Top 10. And this week, I've got a special edition for you because instead of a top 10, I'm going to give you a top eight because this week I'm focusing on artificial crabs and I'll be damned if I can find 10 artificial crabs that I've fished with enough to feel comfortable either praising or even suggesting they might be worth fishing with. That's true, even if I extend my definition of crab to include different kinds of crabs like ghost crabs or mud crabs or even sand fleas, which technically are a kind of crab. But to tell you the truth, I've only ever tried two kinds of artificial sand fleas, Carolina Lure's Yummy Sand Flea, which I saw in the Bass Pro catalog, and of course, Berkeley's Saltwater Gulp Sand Flea, and I've never gotten so much as a nibble on either of those artificial sand fleas, so I'm not about to count them in my top 10 when they're about as useless as a football bat. Likewise, I've seen the Weston Coco the Crab in videos and on tackle sales sites, I know that it's a three-quarter inch crab imitator and that it's a hard body lure, but honestly, I've never owned one or used one, so I'm not going to lie to you, or at least I'm not going to admit that I'm going to lie to you. So I can't count it in my top 10, despite having the hand, hands-down best damn crab lure name out there. When I hear the name Coco the Crab, I want to hang with Coco and drink rum with Coco in some awesome island bar, like, like maybe Donovan's Reef for all of you John Wayne, Lee Marvin, and Jack Warden fans out there. But alas, gun, Guns, Doc, Gil Huey, they've all passed on. They've become crab food, as it were. So me and Coco the Crab are shit out of luck, and the top 10 crab lures just ain't happening, because unless I force-feed you a handful of crab fly patterns to fill in the gaps, this crab boil doesn't go to 10. And since crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight, and I won't let you take her for your mate, Oh, man, now I'm digging deep into the sand for that reference. So let's run it on down to the Krusty Crab and settle for the Fishing Professor's Top 8 Best Imitation Crab Lures. So we'll kick it off with number 8, Offshore Angler's Crab. Offshore Angler, of course, is the Bass Pro House brand for their saltwater tackle. The Offshore Angler Crab is a soft body crab. It doesn't have a lot of lifelike qualities, but it does actually move well in the water. 
Because they're a simple, soft plastic body, you can rig them pretty much any way you want. Most commonly, anglers rig them with a jig head, and the crab has this weird worm-like protrusion that appears to be designed specifically for this kind of rigging. I've also fished them rigged with a weighted wide gap hook or using it as a, in a Texas rig. It's not the best crab imitator out there, but given the limited number of crab imitators that are out there, it does okay for a soft body. They come in packs of eight and they each measure three inches. So they're a good peeler crab bait size. I have to say that they're kind of a generic crab, not really mimicking any specific crab species. If I squint a little or kind of look at them cockeyed after a few bourbons, they kind of resemble a past crab, but really they look more like a radiation mutation of a tube worm, a leech, and a robot's claw. But hell, they do catch fish. Add number seven. I'm going with a company that I grow more impressed with each time I fish their lures. So at number seven, I'm offering up the Australian company Chase Baits Krusty Crab. That's C-R-U-S, not K-R-U-S as in SpongeBob. Chase Baits has only recently started making its foray into the U.S. market, but what I've seen of their saltwater lures and what I see with other reception of their lures, this is a next-gen top-tier company. So yeah, the Krusty Crab is a great crab imitator. This is a crab that looks like a crab. I mean, it really looks like a crab. According to Chase Baits' webpage, it's modeled on a shore crab, but that term is a European term and one we don't specifically use in the States. To me, it looks like a mud crab, spider crab kind of hybrid, but it's probably most likely a green crab, which is what shore crabs are called in North America. Nomenclature, as <clears throat> nomenclature aside, uh, puberty's a tough thing. <clears throat> nomenclature aside, the thing looks and moves like a crab, and I can confirm that Black Drum thinks so to the degree that they will certainly gobble the crusty crab. The design is excellent, and the crab is weighted in such a way that it flutters down to the bottom, always with its belly down. It rests on the bottom belly down every time it drops, plus the flexible wiggly legs on the crab flutter in the water, making it look like the crab is actually swimming. It measures just under two inches, and it comes in 10 colors. At number six, I'm going to go with a new addition to the world of crab imitators and another Australian company, the Cranka Crab. Now, I first saw these crab imitators a few years back online, but couldn't get them in the U.S. at the time. But now Cranka Crab lures ship worldwide. There are two models of the Cranka Crab, but I'm going to lump them all together here. Lump. <laughs> another great crab pun from the professor. I'm going to lump them together here because God forbid I stretch this top eight into a top 10. And then all of you out there in the fishing professor crew will be emailing me to complain that seven should mean seven, not eight. So the two models include the single hook version, which has a pre-rigged single hook in a modular crab design. What that means is this crab comes apart. And when the parts like say the claws get ripped off, you can replace them or any other part of the lure. It's a really innovative design. The single hook version is a 3.35 inch lure that weighs about three quarters of an ounce, comes in eight lifelike color patterns. The single hook version is a revision of the original treble hook version. However, unlike the single hook version, which embeds the hook in the carpus of the crab, the treble hook version places two treble hooks in the claws of the crab. Thus, like a real crab, the prick of the hook emanates from the claw where a pinch might feel sharp to a fish as well. Really clever stuff. 
The treble hook version, which is also modular, comes in a two inch and a two and a half inch version. Both versions are made from a really rugged, tough, soft plastic. There's a lot of research and thought in this crab design. And when you first get it and first see it, you might think that it's over-designed. But let me assure you that if you're targeting fish that eat crabs, the crank a crab will draw the bite. All right, at number five, I'm going to go with a fundamental crab design rendered and produced by a venerable lure company, the DOA Softshell Crab. The DOA Softshell Crab is a Mark Nichols design that is a great redfish bait, and it certainly gets the attention of Cobia Permit, Black Drum, Sheep's Head, and other crab eaters. It's a cool little soft-body crab that measures two inches and comes pre-rigged with a top-facing hook. Visually, the DOA Softshell Crab is, well, it, it's cute. It's almost cartoonish with the soft, smooth lines of anime, like the Powerpuff Girls. It resembles a lot of a, like a mashup of a fiddler crab and a small blue crab. It comes in 27 color options. It does, like almost all Mark Nichols designs, consistently catch fish. All right, in number four, I've got Savage Gear's PVC 3D Crab. This is the lure that won the ICAST Best Saltwater Lure in 2014. It's available in a two-inch version and a four-inch version. These PVC crabs are durable soft-body lures. They're designed based on a 3D scan of a crab, and they have incredible lifelike movement in the water. Part of that realistic movement comes from the fact that the claws of the crab have little air pockets that make the claws buoyant. So they float up in front of the crab, just like a crab in a defensive posture when threatened by a predator. They come unrigged, so you can rig them as you want. I recommend rigging them with Savage Gear's crab stand-up jig, which also allows the crab to retreat in that defensive posture as would a real crab. But you can just as easily rig them with a jig head, a wide gap weighted hook, or any way you like. The larger model mimics a blue crab really well and makes a great tarpon or cobia bait, and the smaller version is a great peeler crab imitator, ideal for permit, redfish, black drum, sheep's head, and so on. Okay, at number three, I'm going to go a bit controversial, or at least as controversial as artificial crabs can be, and I'm going to name my number three favorite crab imitator as Berkeley Gulp Saltwater Peeler Crab. Yeah, yeah, I know. As soon as I mention any gulp product, about half of you are going to start moaning that these are disgusting lures, and can't we just stop talking about gulp baits? Gulp baits are Guggen baits, but the reason anglers keep talking about gulp is that they catch fish, and they're reliable, good go-to baits, and that is certainly true of Berkeley's gulp saltwater peeler crab. The thing about the Berkeley Gulp saltwater peeler crab, of course, is its scent attractants. It comes soaking in the Berkeley crab scent, and the Berkeley baits are known for their maximum scent dispersal. The Gulp peeler crabs look like a molting crab, and these soft, soft, these soft body lures can be rigged just about any way you would want, including rigging them just as you would a live crab. I prefer, however, to conceal the hook in the body of the lure to maximize the lure's visual appeal and to decrease the hook's visibility. The Berkeley Gulp saltwater, saltwater peeler crab comes in two sizes, a one-inch and a two-inch version. Both are ideal bait sizes, and I find that the one-inch size does great for pompano, whiting, and puppy drum while surf casting. In the number two spot, I'm going to go back to that great new company out of Australia, Chase Baits, or at least new to the U.S., and their remarkable crab imitator, the Smash Crab. This is another lifelike looking and moving crab imitator. I love the toughness of this TPE plastic crab, and the design is great. The crab always lands with its claws up, and it's just under four inches and comes pre-rigged with a four-aught weighted hook. 
The hook protrudes through the top of the carpus and points back to the back of the crab and the hook eye. That means that when you retrieve the crab, it moves backwards like a crab fleeing a predator. As it drops to the bottom, the TPE legs flutter like a swimming crab, giving it great realistic motion. The chase bait smash crab comes in six color patterns, but I've had my best luck with the three spot pattern and the Atlantic blue pattern. Really, this has become one of my favorite artificial crabs. And that brings us to the king of crabs, not that K-R-A-B Pollock imitation stuff, but the real deal, the crabbiest crab of them all. But before we crack the claws and dip them in butter, let's get a quick recap for you land crabs. Offshore, angler crab at number eight. At number seven, Chase Bait's crusty crab. At number six, the Kranka crab. At five, DOA's soft shell crab. At number four, Savage Gear's PVC 3D crab. At number three, Berkeley Gulp Alive Peeler Crab. And at number two in the runner-up position, Chase Bates Smash Crab. And so in my number one spot, the she-crab soup of crab lures, the Rangoon of Rangoon, my desire for Pucha. Oh, I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. My number one favorite crab imitator is... Savage Gears TPE 3D Crab. This is a durable crab made from a really tough TPE plastic. It maintains the lifelike quality we have come to expect from Savage Gear lures, and Mads Grossel has again proven to be one of the premier lure designers of today. The TPE 3D Crab is made using 3D scans of real crabs to ensure its lifelike qualities. In terms of visual accuracy, the TPE 3D crab is as close to lifelike as any crab imitator on the market. The TPE 3D crab comes in a one inch and a two inch version. I love the small version when targeting permit and bonefish and the bigger model for tarpon and cobia. All are pre-rigged with Savage Gear's innovative stand-up jig hook. This jig hook ensures that the crab always lands in a defensive posture with claws raised. It also ensures that it always settles belly down. It also keeps the crab moving backwards on the retrieve, maintaining its claws in an upward position throughout the retrieve. The flutter of the swimming legs gives the crab great lifelike motion, even when sitting at a rest. There's a reason that the Savage Gear TPE 3D crab ranks as my number one favorite artificial crab, and that's because it catches fish consistently. In fact, I have caught some of the biggest black drum I've ever taken on this crab lure. It's a lure that I have confidence in, so I fish it a lot. And that wraps up the Fishing Professor's Top 10 8 Crab Imitators. But hey, as a bonus, I do want to note that there's a new crab lure on the way out from Z-Man called the Kicker Crab Z. Now, I've seen specs on the new lure from Z-Man, a powerhouse and soft-body lure manufacturer, and the Crab Z looks to be a damn competitive crab lure. It will be made from Z-Man's proprietary Elaztec plastic material and will have a realistic crustacean profile. So I'll be looking forward to its release in 2023. And so that actually wraps up another top 10 or more accurately a top eight. And as always, if you think I've overlooked a crab imitator, or if you have another comment about any of the top 10 lists or anything on the fishing professor show, feel free to drop me a line at Sid and inventafishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top tens.
Well, as heartbreaking as it may be, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I want to thank Mike Leonard, Vice President of Government Affairs at the American Sport Fishing Association, for taking the time to talk with us today. And I really do urge all of you to check out Mike's podcast, The Politics of Fish, and to subscribe to the Keep America Fishing Forum to keep up with all of the political stuff that goes on that affects our lives as anglers. And of course, I want to thank Mike for all that he and the rest of the crew at ASA do to protect our rights as anglers. I do hope that you found my thoughts about Breckenridge bourbon whiskey useful and that if you're up in the mountains of Colorado flicking those flies to the Rocky Mountain trout that you give the Breck a whirl. And hey, even if you don't have the privilege of dancing with trout, that you grab a bottle of the Breck for whatever you're doing and whenever you're wetting the line. And of course, thanks for taking the time to listen to me scuttle about with those crab imitators. Now, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The cooler is full of ice. I say again, the cooler is full of ice. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I look forward to having you join me for next week's episode and hope you will invite all of your allies and enemies to join you for the Rodcast next week. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on Inventive Fishing's YouTube channel, which does include great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other really cool content. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!